0: Okay, last week we started to examine the Chula Vedala Sutta. This is the shorter series of questions and answers. And this is a dialogue between the Arahant Bhikkhuni Dhammadina, who was declared by the Buddha, the foremost bhikkhuni disciple in the explanation or teaching of the Dhamma and her former husband, the lay devotee, Visakha. And this dialogue opens with a question about the meaning of sakkaya, which means personality or the personalized existence. And Dhammadina has defined the person in terms of the five aggregates subject to clinging, the Panchupadana Kanda. Then Visaka asks about the origin of the person or personality. And Dhammadena replies that the origin of personality is craving, tanha. And as I showed last time, the tanha craving is also included within the five aggregates. It's part of the sankhara. And so the tanha or craving Any one existence, particularly bhavatana, the craving for becoming, for more becoming, this is the seed or cause out of which a new form of personal existence will arise. This is also the the deeper meaning of the second noble truth taught by the Buddha. Not simply that when we have craving, then we are subject to disappointment, sorrow, grief, misery, anxiety, and so on. But rather that this craving is the seed or root cause of Puna Bhava continued becoming, repeated becoming. And so as long as this craving remains intact, when death takes place, that craving will bring about the arising in the future of a new set of five aggregates. A set of aggregates which will inherit all of the experiences, all the character dispositions that have been implanted in the mind through the earlier existences in samsara. Okay, so, and then I illustrated this with this sort of little diagram. And we might think of this somewhat along the, also the model of the old riddle about which, what, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. <laughs> Wherever there is an egg, the egg will give rise to the chicken. Then one chicken will produce another egg which will give rise to another chicken. And so we could think of craving and the personality in the same way. Maybe craving is like the egg that gives rise to the person. Inside the person, one still has craving, that becomes the egg which will give rise to another person, a new personal existence. Okay, so now we come to paragraph four, and Visaka asks, or he mentions first, cessation of personality cessation of personality. This is Sakaya Niroda. Sakaya Niroda. What is what has the blessed one, the Buddha, referred to as the cessation of personality? How does he explain that the cessation of personality comes about? That is, he's asking, in effect, he's asking, what is to be done to put an end to this process of becoming, to this continued re-emergence of the five aggregates of clinging? And then Dhammadina explains or replies in exactly the same words as the third noble truth. She says it is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving the giving it up, the relinquishing of it, letting it go and rejecting of it. This is called the cessation of personality by the Blessed One. So the principle of this should be clear that this is, in effect, the attainment of Nibbana. And the attainment of Nibbana comes about through the eradication of craving. When, while alive, when craving is eradicated, destroyed by the Arahant, then one says that the five aggregates still exist but they exist, cut off at the root. Ucina mula is the poly term. It's like a plant or a tree, a coconut tree that has been cut off at the root. And so one still has the tree, one can still see it, but the tree has been detached from its root. And so eventually the tree will wither up and there'll be no continuation of that tree anymore and so when (laughs) craving has been cut off at the root then the liberated one the arahant is still alive he still manifests these five aggregates but that underlying root that keeps the process of becoming alive that sustains it. We could call it the sap of Tanha of craving, that has been cut off and eliminated. And so when the Arahant passes away, then there is no more rebecoming in the future, no more manifestation anymore of these five aggregates of clinging, Panchupadana Khanda. And that is called the Nibbana element with no residue remaining. As long as the Arahant is alive, then there is this residue left over from previous craving, this collection of five aggregates that was brought into being in this life. But with his passing away, then there is no more arising anymore in any realm of existence of the five aggregates. He has achieved irreversible nirvana. (coughs) Okay, so that is the third question. Then the fourth question is also just a variant on the fourth, fourth Noble Truth. He asks, what is the way leading to the cessation of personality? That is the way leading to Nibbana, to liberation from suffering? And then she replies that it is the Noble Eightfold Path. We'll speak a little more about the Noble Eightfold Path later, since I will take up the Noble Eightfold Path again for some more detailed questions. Okay, now Visaka asks Dhammadina a very subtle question. I think he asked this question because he really wanted to see whether she was in fact an arahant or not. And I think that the question is maybe (laughs) so subtle that only an arahant would be able to answer this from direct experience without repeating the words of anybody else. (coughs) Okay, he asks, is this clinging, clinging it's upadana, is it the same as the five aggregates subject to clinging, affected by clinging. Is upadana the same as the panchupadana kanda? Or is this clinging something apart from, something which can exist separately from the panchupadana kanda? The question is almost a trick question because it seems to be presupposing that there are two alternatives and any answer will have to be formulated in terms of either one or another of these two alternatives. <coughs> and now if one takes the first alternative, That is, if one were to say that upadana is the same as the five aggregates of clinging, then that would mean that the five aggregates themselves are upadana, are clinging. That there would be, that just to have a body, the body itself, the rupakanda, would be clinging. Any feeling, any vedana, would be an act of clinging. Anytime we perceive anything, perception takes place. That perception would be an act of clinging. Anytime we decide to do something, determine to do something, we make a decision to do something, that is a sankara, And then that sankhara would be a clinging. Anytime we are aware of anything, anytime we know something, that consciousness, vijnana, would be a type of clinging. So if upadana is the same as these five aggregates of clinging, then one could never get free from, from clinging, because just to have the five aggregates themselves would be... They'll always be involved in clinging. And if the clinging were something apart from the five aggregates subject to clinging, then this would mean that somehow there could be clinging without the five aggregates, which seems to be almost an unimaginable situation. But now Dhammadina answers by rejecting both of these alternatives. She says that upadana, or clinging, is not the same as these five aggregates subject to clinging. Nor is there clinging apart from the five aggregates, subject to clinging. But rather, it is the desire and lust in regard to the five aggregates subject to clinging, that is the clinging there, or the clinging in regard to them. So here, Dhammadina is focusing in and mentioning only one factor or one Dhamma, one state, as identical with upadana, Though this one state is spoken of in two ways, as desire, Chanda, or lust, Raga. Both of these are just different terms for clinging or upadana. But, I'm sorry, they're just different terms for craving. And here craving is treated as virtually identical with, with clinging or upadana And this desire and lust is found only within one of the five aggregates. What aggregate, in what aggregate is it to be found? In the Sankara Kanda. According to the Abhidhamma teaching, in the Sankara Kanda we have fifty factors that are called Chaitasigas, mental factors. These are mental factors that exist along with consciousness. And when consciousness arises, it always arises together with a particular group of Sankaras. Amongst these Sankaras we have Chaitana, which means volition, intending to do things. Volition or Chaitana is always present whenever there's any act of consciousness. Every time we're aware of something, every time we know something, at the very same moment, there is some intention or volition regarding that object. Sometimes the volition, often it's very, very subtle, so that we're not aware of it. Even when I just sit back and see these paper clips on the table, just noticing them. Even then there's, even though I have no plan or intention to do anything with them, but just to be aware of them, there's some chaitanā, some volition, even if it's very subtle. Then there is something called manasikāra, which means attention. That is the factor of consciousness by which the mind turns to its object, directs itself to its object. That is also, that is always present at every moment of consciousness. There can be other factors which are sometimes present, sometimes not present. Thinking about the object, examining it, making decisions about it and so on and in the Sankara Kanda there are the various unwholesome factors of mind the states greed hatred ignorance conceit jealousy selfishness laziness restlessness all of those are mental factors in the Sankara Kanda, which are of an unwholesome character. There are also mental factors of a wholesome character, states like generosity, kindness, wisdom, mindfulness, confidence or faith, satta. all of these are exclusively wholesome mental factors. Then in the unwholesome group of Sankaras, there's one factor which is called, under, by various names, it's called craving, tanha, greed, lobha, also desire, chanda, or lust, raga. And it is that single mental factor in the Sankara Kanda, that the Buddha calls Upadana, clinging. And it is when that clinging is present, when that clinging is present, then it holds to the five aggregates. It grasps them with desire, with attachment, with this lust for existence. And so that clinging within the five aggregates, subject to clinging, that is the root cause that turns these five aggregates into objects of clinging that makes them subject to clinging. And yet the five aggregates themselves are not all clinging, they're not upadana. The body can exist without upadana. Just to have a body doesn't mean that one has clinging, or that the body is always engaged in activities of clinging. There can be feelings without clinging. There can be perceptions without clinging. There can be all the other mental factors, the mental formations or sankhara, except for this desire and lust, those are not clinging. And there can be consciousness without clinging. But when that one factor of lobha, greed, raga, lust, chanda, desire, is present, then it holds on to all five aggregates and makes them its own servants, its slaves. It makes them subject to itself, to this clinging. And for this reason, all five aggregates become (laughs) The basis for suffering sorrow misery and so on all because of this holding and clinging which comes from desire and lust and therefore the aim of the Buddhist practice is to uproot upadana they say that when one is liberated that the mind is Freed from the, it's liberated through non-clinging. Anupadaya chitam vimuchati. Through non-clinging, the mind is liberated. (coughs) Okay, so now the questioning is going to go on to pursue the nature of this personality and the cause of our bondage to personality at a deep, very deep level. Now, Upadana, according to the sutta, is identified with craving, with this desire and lust. But the question might come up how to remove this attachment to the five aggregates. And one can't simply remove attachment very simply just by discarding it by will. Because this attachment to the five aggregates is protected by, you might say, by a coat of armor by a protective coating which makes it very difficult to strike at and destroy Upadana. It's a little bit like, maybe we could compare it to certain types of viruses which create outer coatings, outer shells, which are very resistant to the work of the Medicines which might be applied to destroy them. In order to destroy the virus, one has to find a medicine which can penetrate through that shell and get to the living virus within it. And so in the same way, this upadana or clinging is like a virus which protects its hold on the five aggregates with a particular coat of armor for a shell. This shell is called Sakaya Ditti, which means personality view. And so now in the next sequence in the sutta, Visaka is going to inquire into the nature of this personality view. So we come to the text. Here, yeah, this is paragraph seven. Visaka asks Damadina, "How does personality view come to be?" And now Damadina replies with a passage which comes very often in the suttas. It's a standardized passage. She begins first by speaking about a type of person who is referred to as the untaught ordinary person, the Pali is a a suttava Putujana, which we also might translate the uninstructed worldling or the ignorant worldling. And then this worldling is described as one who has no regard for the noble ones, who is unskilled in the Dhamma of the Noble Ones, undisciplined, untrained in the Dhamma of the Noble Ones, who has no regard for true men, Sapurisa, that's really the same as the Noble Ones, who is unskilled and undisciplined in their Dhamma. Okay, now we might ask, what is this uninstructed worldling, this untaught ordinary person? According to the Buddha's teaching, all human beings can be divided into two broad classes. There are first the Arya puggalas; These are the noble persons. The noble ones. And these are the persons who have reached one or another of the four paths or fruits. Stream enterers, once returners, non-returners, arahants. And the arahants in turn are divided into disciple arahants, pacheka Buddhas and Samasam Buddhas. So in the ranks of the Noble Ones, who are also called here the Sappurisa, the true or superior men or individuals, we have these four basic stages of sanctity or stages of holiness. Stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arhatsha. And each of those four stages is divided into the two sub-stages of path and fruit. An individual on the path means one who has reached the transcendental path leading to that particular fruit. And so one who has reached the path is definitely bound to reach the fruit within that very lifetime. He has to just cultivate the path and the fruit will come. And for each of the four stages there is this twofold division of path and fruit. And these are distinguished the four types of noble ones. Are distinguished by the defilements that they have eliminated, and the number of lives that remain. So, for example, the stream entera has broken the first three fetters. Fetters of. I don't. if do, not necessary to go into the fetters now. Oh, okay, I'll mention, okay, the fetters of personality view, doubt, and clinging to, you say, rules and rituals. And the stream enter will have seven more lives at most, seven more existences in samsara. returner has weakened to a still greater degree the three unwholesome roots of greed hatred and delusion and for this reason has at most one more existence in the sensuous realm of, its, of becoming. Then the non-returner has extinguished all sensual desire and all aversion or ill will. And therefore, since sense desire and ill will are the two fetters that keep beings bound to the sensuous realm. And therefore, the non-returner, will never come back to the sensuous world. They'll take rebirth in one of the Brahma Lokas, especially the Sudavasa, the pure abodes, and there achieve final nivana. And then, finally, there is the Arahant, the one who has cut off all the fetters, all the defilements, and is completely liberated from all types of conditioned existence. Then the individuals who have reached the fruit of arhatship are three basic types. At the highest level is a samasambuddha. This is one who discovers the entire dhamma, who achieves the Sabanyutanyana, the knowledge of omniscience, who possesses the special powers of a Tathagata and establishes the Buddha Sasana in a world when it has not existed. Then there is a Pacheka Buddha, one who, without the guidance of a Buddha, during a period when the Buddha, Buddha's teaching does not exist. He reaches the attainment of enlightenment and achieves the fruit of final deliverance. But he does not he's not able to establish a sasana, not able to guide others to the truth of enlightenment. Pacheka means solitary, aloof or for himself or oneself. And then there are the disciple arhats, the savaka arhats, who reach the final goal through the guidance of a Buddha by practicing the path taught by a Buddha. And all of these taken together are called the noble ones. Then in contrast with the Noble Ones who are, we call the elect, very few in number, there are the great masses of humanity and these are called putujinas or worldlings. (coughs) The word putujina means literally many, many person or we could say common person. Okay, then the Puthujanas are divided also into two broad groups. One is called the virtuous worldling or the good worldling, Kalyana putujina, And this is a worldling, according to the text, who is a follower of the Buddha's teaching, who has right view, who upholds the at least the five precepts, and who is intending, who is practicing the teaching, intending to reach one of the levels of enlightenment. So this individual, though, he is not yet broken through to the stage of the Noble Ones, but he is accepting the teaching, skilled in the teaching, to some extent, and is training in the teaching. In contrast to this virtuous worldling is the type who is called the Asutava Putujana, the uninstructed worldling, sometimes the ignorant worldling. And this person might be very educated, might be professor at a prestigious university and might have such, so many degrees and honors, but still what the person does not have is regard for the noble ones, does not have special sada, trust, faith, and confidence in the noble one, does not have any skill in the Arya Dhamma, no learning, no practical experience in training in the Aryan Dhamma. So it's a person who has just disregard for the noble, enlightened ones, and no practice or theoretical understanding of the teaching, the Dhamma, of the noble ones. Excuse me? Okay, so the Dhammadina begins explaining how personality view originates by defining the characteristics of the uninstructed worldly. Now an uninstructed whirling is one bound completely by all 10 of the fetters, the sanyojini, the fetters that bind living beings to samsara, the round of rebirth. And the first of those 10 fetters, and you can say that toughest fetter to cut through, is this personality view, Sakkaya Dittti. And this is precisely what keeps the uninstructed whirling cycling over and over again within the round of existence. The holding on to this personality view. And this personality view focuses upon these five aggregates that make up the personality, the panchupadana Kanda. And what characterizes all of these personality, all these types of personality view. So it takes many forms, different forms, but what unifies them is that all the types of personality view involve in some way viewing the person, ourselves, as a self, as a true, truly existing I, something that I really am. Mm-hmm. And when the worldling has this notion, this idea, I exist, I am. Then he starts (coughs) reflecting and thinking and wondering, what am I? And when he examines himself and reflects, then he'll identify this self, the sense of I with one or another of the five aggregates, or else in some way he will establish a relationship between this idea of a self, something that I really am, my true self, and the five aggregates. And when this takes place, it leads to 20 types of ditti 20 different types of personality view. These 20 types of personality view obtained by viewing the self in one or another of four different ways in relation to each of the five aggregates. We have the five aggregates, and each aggregate can be viewed in one or another of four different ways. Okay, in regard, I'm just taking the aggregate of material form as the example. And so he might regard material form as the self. That is, he identifies with the body Thinks the body is myself. The other three positions come about if he doesn't regard the body as myself but thinks of the self as something separate from the body, existing apart from the body. In one case he might think that the self is the owner of the body that is he thinks self as possessing material form this is expressed when we say my body that I am something distinct from the body but the body is mine or else somewhat more, the next two are products of more sophisticated, speculative thinking. The first two are sort of the more instinctive types or natural types of personality view. Usually, very often, we think I am the body. And maybe a materialist philosopher also will come to this view. They'll think, what is the person? The mind is just, you say, a ghost in the machine, just a imaginary thing. What is real is what you could touch, bang on, get a hold of, matter, materiality. And so the body is what is real, what I truly am. But also the ordinary person, even who doesn't reflect Often we think, I am my body. For that reason we're very concerned that we should look pretty and handsome, and (laughs) have a very nice figure and be strong and beautiful because of identification with the body. And also spontaneously we think of the body as a possession, something that I own just as I might own a house, one might own some, a dog or a cat, and so one owns the body. But then the philosophers who speculate and try to devise systems of thought, they will think perhaps that the self is something which exists. They'll think of the body as existing in the self. Maybe the self is a universal self, some all comprehensive, absolute reality, and the body exists in the self. This idea was expressed in the ancient Indian scriptures, the Upanishads, and the philosophy of the Vedanta, that the self is all comprehensive, extending throughout the whole cosmos and everything exists within the self. And some other thinkers will come up with the idea again that the true self is not the body but the self exists within the body, inside the body they will imagine the self to be some kind of individual spiritual entity which exists within this physical organism but in essence separate from the organism. And so we get these four types of personality view in relation to the body and we can get four in relation to the other four kundas. So altogether we get twenty types of personality view. Maybe next week we will deal a little bit more with some of the other types of personality view. Okay, I think we will stop stop now. I would actually say that self maybe I would say that the notion of the I as being something more than just an ordinary term, reference term. So that even a Buddha or an Arhant will use the term I and he'll think in terms of or he'll express himself in terms of I did this five aggregates in the mind of the arhat but the, okay, then let's say some of the noble disciples who have not yet reached Arhatship, they'll still have ideas of I am, I am, but they don't accept these ideas of I, which just arise spontaneously because they have not yet eliminated ignorance. So the idea of I am, continues even in an Anagami, a non-returner. But the non-returner realizes that this idea of I am is just arising because of the ignorance. But he doesn't believe that the I am refers to any substantial reality. But in the case of the worldling, the Putuchina, for him, the idea of I am signifies something real, a truly existing entity, which he is, which he says, I am this. And it's the idea or notion, I am really this, that is the meaning of self. Can you tell us the difference between and Allah? This is something of, it's a, contra- a little controversial issue because I found that there's some... It's actually also a very complex issue. Because I found that it's somewhat hard to bring together the way the presentation comes in the suttas and the way it comes in works like the Abhidhamma and Visuddhimagga. In fact, in the suttas, I don't find a very clear acknowledgement of this distinction, magapala, the way one has it in the Abhidhamma and commentaries. They just the Buddha just speaks about obtaining the path and then one develops this path and he says that in the case of one who achieves the first stage, that one is incapable of passing away without realizing the truth He says that one who becomes There's two types of stage, two types of person that winds up as a stream enterer, depending upon whether faith or wisdom is the dominant faculty. One with faith is called sadhanusari, one who follows along by faith. One with wisdom as the dominant faculty has panya, He's called Dhammanusari, one who follows along through Dhamma, through understanding Dhamma. And the Buddha says of these two individuals, that they have reached the plane, that they have gone beyond the plane of the worldling, that they have arrived at the plane of the true men, Sappurisa, and they are incapable of passing away without realizing the fruit of stream entry. Wait, wait, wait. But wait, wait. I'm not yet finished. I'm not yet finished. But then in the Abhidhamma, the Suddhi Magga and the commentaries, the idea of Magga becomes fully crystallized in the notion of a single mind moment which immediately precedes the attainment of the fruition, which is also just said to be two or three mind moments. And so, according to the presentation, say, of the Visuddhi Magga, one follows, say, the practice and the development of insight until one reaches the Magga, say, the Magga stream-entry Magga. Then that stream-entry Magga is just one moment in which the mind realizes or penetrates Nibbana and penetrates the Four Noble Truths. And then that is immediately followed by the fruition, fruition state. Yeah. Actually, I haven't seen that in the suttas. I haven't even seen that in the comment, exactly in the commentaries. Though I've heard it quoted, it seems to be a statement that which it just floats around. It's said in the. What's said in the commentaries is that the Putujana is like a worldly. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, The Putujana is like a madman. But I haven't seen the statement, Sabe Putujana Umataka, all worldlings are mad. And it's definitely not the Buddha's word. Yeah, somebody back there had a question. So the, the um, ancient. Four paramatthas, the Chitta, Chitta Siddha, the Move of Divan. Now, are we right we say that the entire Jura Vedanga Siddha uh, is a beautifully systematic exposition of those four fundamental basic books? I wouldn't quite say that they're dealing with those four paramatta Dhammas here. I mean, those four paramatta Dhammas of the Abhidhamma, one could identify different subjects dealt with in the sutta as pertaining to those paramatta Dhammas. But I don't think that the sutta is taking up this conception of four ultimate realities, and is systematically expounding them. Yeah, so I wouldn't say that. Okay, I think we should stop now.